0: hello 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 back now today to talk about sarah ahmed's the cultural politics of emotion now before jumping into that a few things to say you can follow me on instagram if you want To see pictures of my cats mostly at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. Uh you can also find this in podcast form pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, now even on Spotify for because it wasn't there for a while, uh but it's now there. Um you can support me via PayPal or Patreon if you want, if you have the means to, obviously that would be great. Uh and I'd like to thank Amrit, Anshul, Boz, Honrik, James, John, Eust, Julio, Killswitch, Matt, and Paul, who have all been really helpful in keeping this going because it's it's a lot of work. Um, But even if you, at this point in, in, in our lives, if you did think about contributing to me, maybe consider deferring that in any amount you wanted. You know, you thought about throwing my way. Consider throwing in the direction of Black Lives Matter or other um, other organizations that are fighting for the rights of marginalized people all over the world, uh, specifically in the United States and Canada, uh, especially organizations that are fighting for the rights of sex workers, because these people often get forgotten, or trans people, especially black trans people and um, indigenous people. So you know, consider them definitely before me. Uh, Now, without then further ado, and also um, I've been told that there are tons of ads on YouTube and I don't get to control when they're put. At least I don't think I can. Uh, But on the podcast form, there shouldn't be any ads. So that would be a lot better for everyone Um, except me because then I'd lose money. But whatever, whatever, whatever anyways okay shut up david um so this book starts with an introduction like almost every book uh titled feel your way so she begins this book and this this chapter by considering a british poster that says this at least this is part of it every day of every year swarms of illegal immigrants and bogus asylum seekers invade britain and this is all funded by you you know, signaling that the person reading that sign is the person paying for it, ostensibly, through tax dollars. Now, Ahmed wants to ask with this book two, I guess, three broad things. She wants to ask what emotions do. She wants to ask how the nation, that is a, a country, comes to embody a kind of identity. So the nation can then, in its embodiment, can be hurt can feel sad can be angry uh, can be vulnerable she's she's asking how that happens and then finally she's asking how does the you the person being addressed which is most often in these settings uh the kind of dominant uh part of the dominant class dominant race dominant uh sex and, and gender how does that you become wrapped up with this national identity so these are kind of three guiding questions uh, that'll keep us, I guess, in line for through the course of this. Now, of course, the construction of the you in this poster, that is the you that is paying for the so-called illegal immigrants, only works through the act of othering, right? So you cannot constitute or create someone who is a you, that is the person being addressed, without them knowing themselves to be different from an other. Now, this can happen, you know, if we're going to get a little bit philosophically technical for a second. In all cases, throughout all of, you know, I guess all of humanity, we know ourselves to be ourselves because we are not, uh, you know, this other person around us, or we know we have bodily autonomy because we, you know, are bound by our own skin in our own body. That's not what Ahmed is talking about here. She's talking specifically about the way that the you constituted in this poster is contingent. It's dependent upon the construction of an exterior, exterior to the nation, other. That is most often a racialized other. So an anxiety develops then about this other. Because this you, this person that identifies with the nation feels that when the nation is under threat they themselves feel like they are under threat so when you have a poster like this that suggests that these people are coming in in swarms which obviously is meant to dehumanize it's meant to kind of equate these people with locusts i guess might be one one kind of insect to relate them to uh, they pose a threat and then therefore the social body feels themselves to be under threat. Now what this reveals, and this is perhaps not, um, I think it's true, but I don't think that the kind of subject that Ahmed is talking about here, in this case the kind of white uh, national subject, the one that's assumed to be part of the nation, I don't think they would accept this to be true, which is interesting. But Ahmed says that this reveals that the nation is a very fragile thing. Because if it wasn't fragile, there wouldn't be this need to kind of defend it in these ideological ways, to constantly uh, reconstitute the formation of a you in relation to an other. And this has to be repeated over and over and over again, almost to make sure that it doesn't go away. Because if it was a secure thing, if the nation was strong, this wouldn't be necessary. So in her words, this reveals that the nation is too emotional too easily moved by the demands of others. So then there are calls to make the nation more secure. You get calls that, you know, are very much floating around the United States. Like today, as I'm recording this, um, I was just reading about how the 200th mile of the United States border wall was was completed. It's something, at least I can speak for myself, I had forgotten about that was being made because of everything else that's going on. Uh, but the, this is part of that desire to secure the nation that is viewed as being rather weak. But these white subjects don't want to admit that. And, okay, I, I want to say something about my use of the word subject, because for some people that might be a little bit dissonant. Uh, when, I, when I'm referring to it here, I mean people who are in a position of uh, relative privilege and authority. So the subjects of the nation are the ones that exist within the nation and acc- proffer, accrue certain uh, kind of social capital through that that they so they can then experience certain benefits. So these subjects want the nation to be secure because they fear the idea of the nation being penetrated, Ahmed says. F- and, and in that, the, the nation is associated with a kind of gendered, um, I guess, associated with women in that it is at risk of being penetrated. Of course, Ahmed doesn't subscribe to that. She's just trying to diagnose how these people understand the nation and how it is understood in terms of the threats ostensibly posed to it. So later on in the book, she's going to talk about terrorism and post 9-11 because this book was written in uh, 2004, I believe it came out. So through all this, we she shows that emotions... Are what bind people together, right? In this kind of national identity, and it isn't a rational thing, right? It's not as though people are sitting in a room, you know, in these in these suits, and they're contemplating how to best deal with, uh, you know, maybe by, by these these so-called asylum seekers or uh, illegal immigrants. These are people screaming in the streets being exceptionally emotional about it. And one figure that might stand out to us would be like Alex Jones, if anyone knows who that is, the um, infamous conspiracy theorist and host and creator, I think, of InfoWars, who is a very emotional person who likes to scream and yell um, about what is happening to America. And this is all incredibly ironic because emotionality, the idea that you are too emotional, Uh, has often been associated with, you know, women, often associated with people that don't care about the nation, right? They're just, you know, emotional people uh, that, you know, are against freedom and democracy and and everything like that. So why is it that when a white man screams and yells, and Alex Jones isn't the best example because not many, I, I assume not too many people take him seriously, uh, but when you have certain figures, like Rush Limbaugh is another good one, uh, Rand Paul, uh, and these, these are all people I just happen to despise, uh, and even Rand Paul's dad, Ron Paul, there is a, an emotionality behind what um, motivates their discourse and motivates their kind of political agenda, in that they feel that there is a threat to America and they are allowed to be upset about it. So Ahmed asks because apparently this has nothing to do with emotion per se or disavowing people on the basis of emotion. She asks whose emotions are allowed and what emotion? What can those emotions look like? Because I'm sure we've all heard it in our lives that if, if a woman is crying, she, you know she's being too emotional. But when men are out after a hockey game where their team lost, like destroying cars and stuff, we very rarely hear that they're being too emotional. It, that doesn't enter our lexicon. It doesn't come out of our mouths, uh, which is very interesting. So what is emotion for Ahmed? Because that's what the book is called. It's the cultural politics of emotion. For her, she defines emotion as the feeling of bodily change. And this this is an embodied thing. This happens within us. And we can feel it. It doesn't just, uh, it doesn't exist like purely in the mind. This is something that we feel extend from the mind into the body. And there is very often in emotions a kind of immediacy that we have very little control over. So when we are emotional, you can't just turn it off and it'd be wrong to think that you could. It is in very many cases something that just kind of happens to us and it happens to us because of, you know, our own history. It happens to us by the contact that we have with other things in that moment. So, someone might break down and cry from seeing, you know, a, a wonderful work of art, which is apparently a phenomenon that, that happens. Um, that's something that, that makes sense. So, when we see this work of art and we, we feel this kind of emotional response, that emotional response does not purely exist within us. And we are not just conjuring it up in relation to this thing that exists objectively out there. Because for Ahmed, the emotion is bound up with the thing that is eliciting it. So that it's not as though that object out there is the creator of that emotion, because for someone else, that work of art might not produce this emotion. So therefore, we have to be very careful not to say that, you know, some objects are emotional, or some people are emotional and some aren't. We have to instead consider the ways that for certain people with certain histories, meeting certain objects with certain histories, can produce these effects and affects. So this is a distinction that I'm making here between effect and affect. And this is a difficult one um, because affect is by no means easy to grasp. And this is because, oh, I could go on for a long time about this, Um, but it comes down to the roots of what phenomenology is, which is a long word that I'll try to explain quickly. Phenomenology is the idea that as humans, we come in contact with the world. And this isn't because the world exists out there objectively. It is because we have the capacity to grasp the world through our senses. So, our five senses, in a sense, constitute, it. they create the world because the world does not exist objectively to us. It only exists to us through our senses. So when we smell something from the world, let's say the smell of freshly cut grass, we are not actually smelling freshly cut grass because we smell it and then our bodies turn that smell into sense data That goes into our brains, and then our brains produce a certain stimulation or um, tells us to kind of feel a certain effect that we can then make sense of, that we then associate with cut grass. There's a show on Netflix, and this is an old experiment, but I just want it to be more topical. There's a show on Netflix called Magic for Humans, and in this show, there's a the magician does this trick where he gets this person to sit at a table and he p- divides up the person's torso essentially with uh, a kind of wooden uh, cutout, th- so that he the person can't see their own arm instead the magician puts a fake arm where the person believes their arm to be now what this magician shows is that because the person does not see their real arm they then come to substitute their real arm with the fake mannequin arm so the magician then like hits the mannequin arm and the person winces and 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 feels pain and and certain stimulations even though they are not objectively being touched they aren't objectively um pain is not happening to them but at the same time the magician pokes and and stimulates the person's real hand and they do not respond so we must then ask how objective are our experiences of the world, because if we have, you know, our sense of sight cut off, or it's, um, you know, kind of obfuscated or or distorted because of our this substitution of an arm with this fake arm, it really questions how you know real this world out there is and how it is determined by our senses. So this is what we mean by affect. Objects work upon us, not because they have an objective essence in the world, but because we engage with them through our senses. So there's a giving and taking here, where I work upon the thing via my senses, and the thing inputs itself upon us, so there's a kind of reciprocal relation here. So in that encounter, I am not the only thing affected, that object is also affected, Let's, let's go back for a second to the painting, the idea of the this wonderful work of art. A work of art only attains its value as such if it is accepted as such. So uh, this work of art to a person that might come from a completely different cultural background might not look upon the work of art with any kind of strong emotional response. In fact, they might Show indifference to this work of art. So that then asks, how do these people who feel an emotional connection to this work of art that they break down and cry, how does that act of crying actually reinforce the art's position as a thing that can elicit these responses? And then we must ask, how much of the fact that this art can do this is determined by, is contingent upon, it's existing as a work of art, probably in a museum at this point or an art gallery or something, that in a sense sets the tone for how we are supposed to respond to it. And it is through these repetitive acts, so many people experiencing this over and over and over and over and over again, that the object comes to take on more kind of cultural meaning, more cultural value, which can then produce more of these responses. But that's all very, you know, in a lot of the, that's me talking here, this isn't really Ahmed. So in her words, describing this kind of giving and taking, she says emotions are relational. They involve reactions or relations of towardness or awareness in relation to such objects. So emotions are social for Ahmed. They exist in the, as a kind of sociality of emotions. They are effects of circulation for her, and they, they belong to a general economy of feeling uh, where they circulate in a certain kind of cultural setting that then gives certain things certain meanings. So there's a kind of pop psychology book by um, Lisa, uh, Lisa Barrett, I believe, called How Emotions Are Made, in which she makes essentially this argument with all the kind of scientific evidence and and you know all the studies that kind of prove this uh, but emotions don't exist out there in the world in fact the ways that we convey emotions that is in a kind of i'm going to speak from a north american setting do not translate to every kind of cultural um, paradigm where something like smiling for some cultures is not seen as a sign of uh, you know kindness or, or friendliness. it is seen as an act of hostility because you are showing your, your teeth if you smile. and to show one's teeth is to uh, you know like with a predator is to show that you're ready to bite the person or at least you want to demonstrate that you have the capacity to bite someone. So in saying all this, Ahmed is trying to move beyond a kind of psychological model to study uh, emotions. She's saying that the psychological model interiorizes emotions far too much. Instead, she wants to oppose that to an inside-out model where the outside works on the inside and the inside works upon the outside, and it's not as though all emotions are just housed in the brain because they circulate, right? They exist in a kind of in cultural settings and social settings, religious settings, everything like that. And she 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 wants to qualify this though, and this is where it gets really interesting but also very tricky she says that even this idea of there being an inside like like a psyche and an outside or a a field of kind of where the social is um she says that even that is a distinction that is created through emotions and that is a distinction that doesn't necessarily exist before that which is interesting and I, i happen to like it a lot so this kind of puts us here to conclude the intro where she says that this book, the cultural politics of emotion looks at things like she focuses on Australia and Australia's uh, treatment of their indigenous people. Uh, she looks at uh, the responses to international terrorism and the responses to uh, refugees and immigrants all over the Western world. And that puts us here. Um, into chapter one, titled The Contingency of Pain. So she begins this with a long quote by Christian Aid that essentially, and it, and it appears to be a very good thing, uh, they're trying to rid the world of landmines, which I think we would be good if no one had landmines. That'd probably be good. Uh, and she says that the word landmine here is meant to communicate the pain that it causes beyond drawing the reader's attention to the specific object so this quote describes the way that someone suffers from a landmine which makes yeah it's not surprising landmines are horrendous Um, but what this does is it very much in keeping with the first quote we talked about it constitutes the reader as the subject of its address so it it interpolates the subject. And interpolate is a French word that comes from uh, Louis Althusser, And Althusser argues that subjects are born when they are called upon in a kind of, in relation to some form of power. And you are, as a subject, um, a, uh, you become a subject of that power when you are recognized in the eye of that power and then you can accrue certain benefits but these are benefits that are always already determined by the system in which you are you are found um, and i won't go further into it than that but i should i should do that essay even though i don't I have political uh reasons not to present out um anyway so sorry off off track here uh so you become the subject of the address here and what happens with this quote is that the suffering of others is it overshadows the people themselves and what happens then is that there is a a distinction made or kind of revitalized or rejuvenated between us and them and the them that is the people who you know experience these these horrendous things are associated not with their own identities, not with their own cultures, not with their own beliefs, but with their suffering from landmines. And of course we could take all of this with a grain of salt because Christian Aid is a very problematic uh, organization, right? We have to question how much of their political agenda influences their so-called humanitarian one. or The religious agenda influences that. Where it seems like their desire to rid the world of suffering is not necessarily motivated by a desire to make the world better, but by a desire to accrue more religious value or capital. Um, and what what this does additionally is it makes the other seem like they are in constant need of help. They are in, you know, the West has to take it upon themselves to be the world's caregivers, And, of course, that completely erases the fact that the West's so-called capacity to give as caregivers has been entirely dependent upon their having taken from most of the people on Earth, from having colonized, from having exploited, all of that. And we erase that history, and it becomes just, you know, we look at our might. We have so much to give. We have to give to people, which is just another way to extend uh indebtedness indebtedness to make them to put people in debt essentially to our because of our um generosity you know i'm using air quotes generosity so she then considers pain because that's what the title of the chapter is right the contingency of pain after meditating on this this pain of others and she asks what is pain And she she doesn't want to give an answer to that because, you know, for everyone, pain is different. This is just a a truth. Um, If anyone, if anyone, uh, one of us have have gone to the doctor and the doctor asks us to describe the pain we're feeling, I I can, I should probably only speak for myself. I always question it when I describe the pain I feel or when they say uh, scale your pain uh, or rate your pain on a scale from one to ten. I'll give a number and then a minute later or a second later, I'll be like, is it really that or am I just making that up? Like, how do I how do I quantify pain? And in that way, it's a very difficult and stubborn thing. And this is something that doctors deal with, like the conferences deal with this problem of how to actually extract the most effective um kind of testimony or truthful testimony from a patient so that you know exactly what they're describing and it's a very difficult thing to do it's and i'm not saying it has a solution but it's something that people are certainly talking about and trying to work with so instead of giving a kind of definition because ahmed has a ton of humility she's even though she's wicked smart um what pain does is a lot more interesting to her than defining it per se Rishi says that pain allows us to have a sense of our skin as bodily surface, because pain, if we're talking about it in a physical way, is always it is always acted upon the skin. And what that does is it gives us a sense of our kind of bodily limitations, who we are as as people in a sense, and it constitutes our surface. Now, if we are without pain, if we somehow live lives that don't don't have pain in them, which would be I'd, I wish that for everyone. Um, there's something kind of negative that comes from that, in that we lose sight then of our skin. We lose sight of our um, kind of selves because we aren't we aren't feeling that specific sensation. And I guess other things could fill in that void, like pleasure, or you know that that give you a sense of the the your skin give you a sense of your body. But there's no denying that without pain there's something kind of lost and I want to say that I don't know if this loss is good nor bad and I don't know if Ahmed wants to say that either but she does say that when we experience pain we add that sensation that our our memory of that thing to our kind of archive of feelings which is a term she borrows from and Svetkovich, whose whose book is of the same of the same name, an archive of feelings, we add that to our own archive of feelings, so that we can, you know, not do the thing that hurts us again. You only you will only touch the hot stove once, and then that's that's it. Like you you've learned your lesson, um, and without that, you know, without that possibility to kind of um, amass this history, this kind of archive. You know, it it feels like there's a loss of what it means to grow then, at least for me. But I'm not in any way romanticizing pain. And people experience it on totally different levels than others. Um, So yeah, just keep, we're, we're, we're treading this very carefully here. So when you have certain subjects that don't feel pain, or that are kind of live pretty safe, happy lives, Ahmed says that we, they construct pain. And she gives the analogy of like, it feels like I'm being stabbed, stabbed in the back or something when you're describing an emotional, uh, you know, instance where if someone betrays you emotionally, like they go behind your back to talk to your boss or something, you say you feel like you were stabbed in the back because the emotional pain is not enough. Like we have to bring it to a kind of physical one because we can all ostensibly relate to that. But we only know or kind of have an idea about what being stabbed in the back means by a kind of collective understanding of that thing. That isn't to say we've all experienced being stabbed in the back, but as a kind of cultural signifier, it has a certain meaning. And so when you say that, no one says, oh, well, what What do you mean? What kind, what, well, stabbed in the back where? Like if you get stabbed in the shoulder, it's very different than being stabbed in like the kidney or something. No one says that, right? We just know what they're saying. So pain is then informed by both our kind of personal histories and the cultural history, the kind of cultural situation in which we find ourselves, not to mention as well the you know the object that is, is inflicting this pain. So she really wants to emphasize that this opens up the possibility to consider pain um, not as a kind of homogenous, phenomenon but one that is experienced differently by different people depending on the histories from which those people come Uh, and the histories of those people or objects that are inflicting the pain so with something like racism or violence committed against black people what we see there is a very different kind of violence and a very different kind of subsequent pain than when um i don't know than when uh uh, I don't even know. Someone gets hit by a car. I don't know why that's the example that I could only come up with. Uh, But when we have a history meeting another history, we have to account for both. Where in the case of racism, this doesn't just happen out of nowhere. This doesn't just happen as a one-time thing. This is something that has been happening repeatedly. And with that, we see pain become intensified. And as we are seeing... The response to that pain is intensifying, and soon, if hopefully not yet, very soon, people will grow absolutely dissatisfied with it and will not accept it any longer. This isn't to say that the onus should be on black people to undo systemic violence. Absolutely not. Even though that seems to be the case, um, it's the responsibility of the oppressors to undo that violence, to, to make amends. Um, Which is kind of segues us here into how she wants to consider pain, the pain inflicted upon others in Australia with the colonizers inflicting pain upon the indigenous communities. So she says that she considers here uh, the what was called bringing them home report uh, that outlined the harms experienced by Australian indigenous people through colonization. So the Bringing Them Home report was a kind of way by which Australia, at least ostensibly, would come face to face with the violence that it committed against its indigenous population. And I, its indigenous population, as though, why did I say it that way? As though the indigenous people belong to Australia, um, which is certainly not the case, um, So what this report did was reveal the necessity to consider kind of national shame rather than personal guilt. So while it would be nice if people felt personal guilt, it isn't like any of the people living in Australia, and the same can be applied to to the Americas uh, over here as well. It's not as though any of us (laughs) were part of that kind of um, colonization. And I'm putting a big, big asterisk here, saying like, of course, we should still feel guilt, but just for now, let's pretend that personal guilt will get us nowhere. So the Bringing Them Home report tries to emphasize a kind of national shame, where the nation, rather than individuals, should feel guilty for what happened. But she's suspicious of this, and the reason why she's suspicious of this is is because as soon as we consider the nation as being the thing that should feel guilt, what we are doing then is saying that the nation is a white nation, and the white people that committed these harms should, you know, that they belong to that national shame and should feel bad. Now what that does is it reinscribes the idea that the nation is white. The nation is has its European roots, and that is never going to change. All that the nation needs to do is feel bad for it, and then it can move on. Maybe it'll make some amends, have some kind of, uh, you know, pay people back in certain, you know, compensatory ways. But that doesn't get at the heart of the matter. In fact, it's just a very subtle way for Ahmed that they, the idea of the nation is reinforced. So what she says then is reconciliation becomes, in this narrative, the reconciliation of indigenous individuals into the white nation, which is now uh, cleansed through its expression of shame. So healing, in this sense, is seen as the healing of the nation, the nation having done wrong, instead of the healing of the indigenous people that have been hurt, right? And this is kind of what happens with like white tears, where if a white person is called out, Uh, for being racist and this might be a a well-minded you know left-leaning white person who who happens to say something that is racist and they have a very strong reaction they might start like crying and feeling really bad about what they did and then it becomes the um, the task of those people that called them out in this case let's say they were happen to be black people uh, calling out the racist person then it becomes the black people's responsibility to make the racist person feel less bad and be like, oh, no, no, you know, you're not you're not that bad. Like there's, you're really OK. You're a good ally. Things like that, um, which takes attention away from their racist action and makes it about how they are the victim. The white person is the victim in that in that way or in that setting. So a better response for Ahmed, and she's, by means, she's not saying that this is like the, this will solve the problem. But she's saying that a a better response would be that people actually feel in their core, because we are part of these nations, we identify with them. Uh, In my case, you know, it's Canada. We identify with Canada as the nation to which we belong. Even if we renounce with all our hearts this kind of patriotism assumed of that, we still have to acknowledge that we exist and um, we experience and, and, and enjoy certain benefits offered by these, this national identity. So we have to recognize that and become uncomfortable as, as a first step. We have to recognize that our comfort in this world is predicated very much upon the fact that we have, just a, in, in the case of Canada just a few years ago, segregated um, tore people from their homes so that we could have this thing called Canada and, and you know, force them in, into residential schools where they wouldn't have their culture or their families, which is a very, obviously, a very tragic thing. Um, so in this way, colonialism represents a very specific kind of violence because it imparts itself on colonized bodies, forcing them to become one with the colonizers, lest they suffer. So if you don't you know, do what we say, you're going to suffer. And this is, you know, I'll say in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing um, Gayatri Spivak's Can the Subaltern Speak, which is, I think, a very nice supplement to this, this text. But that propels us here into chapter two, the organization of hate. So she starts this chapter with a quote from the Aryan Nations, Website in which they argue that racism and xenophobia are the products of love for the nation, whites and and men, uh, that these are not signs of hate. So of course Ahmed doesn't like that, right? Ahmed is very very suspicious of these efforts by hate groups to claim that what they are doing is love, that they're really love groups. Uh, so the the racists say they love their nation, they love their fellow white people, they love. You know their 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 culture, um, which are things that they feel to be under attack by people that hate them. So they align themselves with victims. They say that they are victims to someone else's hatred, and their love is what is going to stop this hate. So in the, w- when they do this, they're doing something. It's almost clever, even though it's not deliberate. Ahmed says that these people, when they align themselves with love instead of hate. They kind of erase themselves and they allow themselves to disappear into the folds of the nation, into the folds of the kind of dominant identity, where they do not mark themselves as special or powerful or superior. They just mark themselves as the ordinary, you know, ordinary, hardworking Americans that are uh, at risk of losing their jobs because of, you know, big government, because of corporations, because of immigrants because of you know terrorists anything like that so they what they do there is they normalize their position in the world and that can't be questioned at all and it's it's really clever because we then you know come to think who is the face of america or who is the face of canada and it's that hard working rural uh white person right that wears you know the plaid or the jeans always jeans um but, yeah, so hate then doesn't exist in isolation, right? It belongs to a general economy, or it circulates in a specific social and, and cultural setting, and it is directed at others, laterally, right? It's directed at um you know immigrants who supposedly hate, and i'm I'm using America just because the the rhetoric is so in your face, even though the exact same things are applicable to Canada. Without a doubt, you know the setting I'm I'm from, but it's it's just easy to scapegoat the states as though it's only happening there because it is so much more in our faces. Um, but in no way do I think that Canada is any better. Uh, so, in the case of the United States, when people are saying that immigrants hate America, or you know, um, protesters hate America, unless of course they're protesters who want to get haircuts because of uh, Covid, then that's that's fine. Those those protesters are okay. But protesters fighting against police violence not okay. Those aren't okay. Or when they were just taking a knee, at football games, like that, and that wasn't acceptable. So there's no, there is no acceptable uh, transgression in the United States, unless it is conducted by white people, which seems to be the only case. White people can ride in the streets and have no tear gas thrown at them, but you know, black people fighting police violence, and then it's that's it. So she considers this. She considers the role of hate in a kind of um, economy of, of feelings to, to bridge the gap between psychoanalysis and Marxism, or to kind of point to how they can they can be read in dialogue. Uh, now, I don't want to take a whole lot of time and go into each of those things um, because it's, it's a lot. But what she's saying is that through Marxism, we can understand the kind of economy of effects and how they they float as a kind of exchange, they are exchanged, and how they come to affect minds with psychoanalysis. So for Ahmed, the more that signs uh, circulate, the more effective And affective they become. So there's oh god I don't know if I remember the name. Uh, There's it was like a documentary that depicted the representation of Arabic people in popular American culture, and they are often associated with the terrorist. Right? So often is that does that image conveyed? And when that image is circulated over and over again, when it is repeated over and over and over again it gains more and more traction and it is able to produce and elicit, that is, to produce in the individual, the same response as others, as other people. So through circulation, there is a kind of gravitation towards a a, a homogenous response to something. But hate is clever because it doesn't just want to associate it with a single person and it's very malleable. So one week or one... You know, month probably, it's like the terrorists. Another month, it's protesters. Another month, it will be immigrants. Another month, it will be uh, asylum seekers, quote unquote, asylum seekers. And that serves uh, it, a certain function for Ahmed in that it allows hate to be easily transferred onto um, easily marked scapegoats. So for her, The impossibility of reducing hate to a particular body allows hate to circulate in in an economic sense. And hate, interestingly enough, actually has something in common with love. Because hate doesn't want the other, In in this case where it belongs to a kind of circulation of effects, to an economy of effects, hate doesn't want the other that it hates to disappear. It actually depends upon that other, because that other, the person that, you know, the subject hates, the other is, exists so as to constitute, to, to galvanize or to um, construct the idea of the self, of the subject, where, you know, an analogy we could give is that we don't know what warmth is without cold. We need these kind of relative markers to, um, to give an identity to something. So we know ourselves as subjects because we are able to position our subjecthood in relation to an exterior other. And we can strengthen that, that separation if we associate the other with hate. So we say that the other hates us. And what that does, it doesn't speak any truth, but what it does is it makes ourselves a stronger entity in the nation. Because we, we galvanize a stronger group identity than in relation to that hateful other. God, I hope that made sense. So hate maintains a relationship, even though it's a relationship predicated upon dislike and hatred. It, se- it maintains the other in proximity to a subject. So how can we talk about hate in this setting without considering something like a hate crime? So Ahmed considers that for a moment. She says that the hate crime, at least how it is interpreted in the law, in the legal sense, is, is often wrong. Where she says that in the legal sense, a hate crime is understood as an act upon... Uh, a person based on their uh, race, gender, class, one of these markers of identity. They are, they are attacked on the basis of that. Now, what Ahmed says is that by designating a hate crime as that, as the violence inflicted upon someone on the basis of their race, gender, or class, or, or anything else, um, what that does is it forgets that hate is actually reconstituted in each one of these acts and what is even more these identity markers and they are often racialized and sexualized ones um, where the white subject is often seen as being the neutral one these identity markers are actually rejuvenated and revitalized with each hate crime and these are acts of repetition repetitive hate that constitute the other as an other in relation to a transparent, neutral white subject that doesn't get seen as being associated with with color or with with you know the male subject with with gender or anything like that. And what that ultimately does is it reduces the hate crime to an individual instance, forgetting that of course it comes from the very you know uh, very strong history. So I think that with that. I'll wrap up this episode and can finish it, uh, with the, in the next episode. Uh, but if, you know, I said anything wrong or I mischaracterized Ahmed in any way, I'd love to hear about it. Um, but in, you know, if you want to help me, uh, if you want to contribute without giving money, obviously by liking and subscribing would be cool. Um, but if not, then obviously don't feel obliged, but anyways, take care.